Welcome to Harnessing Your Wealth with Billy Peterson. As the founder and CEO of Peterson Wealth Services and a former jockey, Billy knows what it takes to successfully make it across the finish line. In this podcast, Billy and his team will help equine enthusiasts, business owners, and retirees identify their goals so they can improve their finances and achieve the future they desire. Saddle up and get ready to gain insight and strategies on how you can harness your wealth. Welcome to Harnessing Your Wealth with your host, Billy Peterson. Today, we are going to get to know all about Billy. I'm Wendy McConnell. Hello, Billy. How are you? I'm doing great, Wendy. How are you today? Oh, I'm good. And I'm excited to uh, dive in a little bit and get to know you a little bit better. Um, Let's start off with talking about your decision to get into this industry. How did that happen? Well, that dates all the way back to the time I was 14 years old, believe it or not. And I didn't really know at the time the seeds were being planted. But back in those days, I would go over to the coffee shop with my dad and all the other local farmers it was an afternoon thing. It was a it was a ritual. And one day I was sitting there minding my own business, listening to them all talk about weather and problems with farm and politics and of course the normal banter. But the one gentleman that was sitting there that day knew that I was starting out my career as a jockey and he asked me some questions about how I was doing. And he found out as I was telling him that I was doing fairly well and I was making decent money for a kid my age at 14. And then he asked me, what are you doing with all that money you're making? Kind of joking. And I said, well, I'm putting most of it in the bank. And I was pretty proud of myself. And he kind of chuckled and said, all right, Billy, I'm going to give you some life lessons here. Come on back tomorrow and I'm going to tell you what I'm talking about. So." Of course, that piqued my interest. And imagine a 14-year-old kid listening to an adult. I think most kids would have not been too concerned about what they had to say, but I was interested in what he had to say. So I came back. I went back the next day to the coffee shop. And sitting there, he pulled out his newspaper and he told me, all right, now take a look here. This is the investment section. This is the section that I want you to pay attention to and I want you to get familiar with. And I want you to watch this section and read it every day. And he pulled out the mutual fund area and scrolled down and he pointed to a mutual fund. Of course, at that age, I had no idea what a mutual fund even was, nor what investing meant. But he circled a fund and told me, this is the fund that I want you to consider investing in. And he had actually taken the time to pull out some investment applications for me, for the fund company, and brought them along. So we passed those over and said, here's how you do it. And of course, it was a form to fill out my information and tell them how much I wanted to send in. And he explained how it worked, that I would actually send my money in and this company would take my money, invest it for me, and I would be able to sit back and watch it grow. Now, he told me it wouldn't be all at once, but I could continue to invest in that fund and I wouldn't have to do any physical labor to see my money grow. Well, I was hooked from that point on. And I took that home and I filled it out and I sent in the application along with a check. And I remember I sent in a check for $500 to get started 
with that investment when I was 14. And I watched it and I paid attention to those statements. And then I started to do a $50 a month contribution. So they would just pull the money out automatically and put it into this investment. Well, of course, over the years, that's that was the seeds that started my interest in investing and in the whole world of finance and monitoring this stuff. And that that's what got me started. And lo, lo and behold, getting into the career I had as a jockey, I was already involved in, with investing. And I was monitoring my investments, of course, making larger and larger investments at that point in my life when I was 18, 19, 20, 21, and my career was really in full swing. So then other industry insiders were asking me for advice. What do you invest in? How do you get started? What kind of an account should I open? And of course, I had all the answers. And then my name became synonymous with the guy who knew how to get started with investing because most people in the horse racing industry don't have a whole lot of insight there. And so I could offer that and it one thing led to another. And when the time came for me to change careers, it was kind of a, an awakening and the door opened for me. It was like magic. And I had an opportunity to get into this industry and never look back. Okay. So you were a jockey. How interesting is that? Tell us more. <laughs> Yes, I was a jockey. I had, uh, and I guess, a gene that I was born with. My family is Dutch, and we're all pretty tall. And my sisters, for example, she's five ten. My dad's five eleven. My all my uncles and cousins are over six foot. My brother's six two. I'm five six and a half. And the reason was is I was born with a genetic deficiency called rickets, and it's hypophosphatemia. It's it's a lack of phosphorus in your bones. And when I was a kid and other cousins and family members who also had this issue, we, were, we developed severe, severely bowed legs. And back then they didn't know how to correct it or fix it other than to cut the femur bones and rotate them inward and then staple them back together. In other words, so you kind of turning the bone in so it's no longer bowing out, but now it's kind of bowing front and back and combining it with the stapling, it is intended to stri straighten it out. Wow. And that's what happened, but they cut the growth plates. And so every one of us who had that particular surgery, me and several of my other cousins, uh, of course, our growth was severely stunted. So that's how I got into um, having the right size, I guess. Not the easy way, the hard way. But I, my family always had horses and, and my dad had racehorses. And I was fascinated with racehorses time I was a little kid. And being the only one in the family who was the right size and height to be a jockey, that a lot of my family members would ask me to exercise their horses. And with my passion for it, and of course, the right size, I decided that was going to be my career. And uh, he started out here in Utah, rode around the local circuits and bush tracks and Wyoming Downs, and then moved on to some of the bigger tracks in Texas and New Mexico, Oklahoma, Colorado. Oh, California, I rode a lot at the big tracks there, but all over the Western United States and during my 10-year career. So you started at 14? Correct. 
Yeah, I was 14 when I got started. Of course, you can't get licensed, officially licensed by a paramutual racetrack until you're 16. But I was riding at a lot of the bush tracks and tracks that you don't need a license when I was 14. So then you probably had a leg up on the other jockeys, right? <laughs> well, yeah, that's a good way to put it. I, <laughs> I started riding when I was even younger, you know, got on my first horse when I was seven and I rodeoed my family is full of rodeo participants, cowboys generationally dating way, way back. And so farmers and ranchers and cowboys, it's, it's filled in my genetic history. So how long did you do this for? Well, I, I quit riding in 1996. End of 96 is when I rode my last race. And I, I just felt like it was the right time. I had this opportunity to work at a brokerage firm. I was in California at the time, riding at Los Alamitos primarily. And it was night racing. And the night racing combined with getting up in the mornings to be at the track early to gallop horses on the track at 6 a.m., and then I was going to a brokerage firm in the middle of the day to get experience and understand what it was going to take to work in that profession. And then back of the track for night racing, starting at 5 or 30 p.m. until about midnight. And I was just to the point where I was burnt out. And not to mention, you're always dieting. You're starving yourself. I'm 5'6" which for me and my family is short, but for jockeys is kind of tall. And I had to continually monitor my weight and be very, very careful with what I ate and always trying to pull weight. It seemed like you're never able to really enjoy yourself going out to a meal. That was the funny part. You'd go win a big race. The owners and trainers, of course, the first thing you want to do is go celebrate. Let's go out to dinner. You know, We're going to go have a nice meal, cocktails, dinner, wine. Okay, I'll have a carrot and a salad. And some saltine crackers, please. Not Thank even you. on race day? You couldn't even enjoy a meal on race day? Oh, race day is the worst because it's it's not like a wrestler, you know, where you weigh in and then you can do whatever you want between then and the actual event. You know, well, I mean, after the event, though, <laughs> after the event, you have to prepare for the next day. Oh, so you're always thinking, all right, if I eat this right now, I've got to somehow burn it off and lose that for tomorrow. Hmm. Every day is a new day on the scales. And you might get on the scales 15, 20, 30 times, depending on how many races you ride. You ride, you you weigh before and after every race to make sure there was no cheating going on. So, you know, that's funny because most people don't realize, well, how could you cheat if they weigh you? Why do they have to weigh you after? Because sometimes jockeys don't pack enough, right? They do try to get an advantage. So let's say a really small rider steps on the scale to get on to before the race and he, his assigned weight is 118 pounds and it's showing 118. And then after the race gets off and he's only 114. And because he may have not packed the lead in the saddle that he was in, intended to pack. So if you're too heavy, of course, you have to pull it. And there's not very many ways to pull it other than suck the water out of your body. When you're too light, there's always easy way to fix that. You just put lead in the saddle. Okay. Now, did you go on a like a big food party after you retired? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a funny story in itself. You know, 
I dreamed about what I was going to eat. You know, I spent all those years sucking weight, not able to eat, not able to partake in all these dinners. And I thought, I am going to really enjoy this after I retire. And I knew the night I was going to retire. It was actually a big event in California. There was big races there that night and ESPN was on hand. So ESPN reporters were doing a full length story on me. You know, I was a jockey up and coming kind of a, I was the number one rider in the country in 1995. So I was thinking this guy's come out of nowhere. He's, he's a top rider in the country. The following year I'm quitting. And that was a story and they wanted to understand why, what would be my motivation to do that. And I went through all the ups and downs and, you know, reasons why. And I had this new career in mind. And a lot of people kind of laughed at me for giving up something that I was doing so well at six figure, six figure income, rising to the top of the sport and give it all up to go into a business. I had no idea what I was even doing, but the meal. Okay. So I was driving back to Utah after that last race that night. And it was late at night races. got done at midnight or something. And of course you think, well, he's got to have something really good in mind. Stop for steak, dinner, spaghetti, something, all you can eat. And nope, nope. I had to get gas at the convenience store. And there staring back at me out of the window was the foot long hoagie sandwich. Looked pretty appetizing. It had probably <laughs> been there for four or five days, but I grabbed it. and It makes ate, it better. <laughs> <laughs> ate the whole thing. Oh, it was disgusting. Oh, but it tasted good. I was sick the whole ride home. And it was a nine hour drive. Oh, Lord. That, but that was the most I'd ever eaten at one time in many years. Yeah. And I paid the price. <laughs> oh, what a sad story. Yeah, it was. <laughs> okay. Well, now you've totally fascinated me, but let's talk a little bit about um, your other work. So, uh, do you have what? would be like a specialty when it comes to your business? Well, I, I kind of look at our firm as unique in a way because we're so simple. We don't make things overcomplicated. And I think from my experience in this industry, which is now 26 years, what I've found is there are so many academics who are too smart for their own good in this industry that we are participating in helping people with something that's important is managing their money and making sure they have the resources to retire and meet their lifelong goals, like buying a second home or putting their kids through college or just ensuring that they're comfortable during their retirement years. Too many folks and firms, institutions have tried to make an extra buck by making it seem complicated. And it has to be super, super sophisticated and complex in order to make people feel like they can't do it themselves. Now, what, what I mean to say by simplify the process is we want to find investments that are both simple to understand and liquid, meaning they can turn those back into cash quickly and easily. So we're not interested in the hard to understand products, the high fee products, things that are the new latest and greatest. Because again, in my 26 years, I found out so many of those ended up not working out and costing people lots and lots of money. And uh, I think some of these people in our industry can be, too sm again, too smart for their own good, trying to figure out the latest 
mousetrap. I always go back to Warren Buffett when I have a question. He makes things simple. And that's why he's been so successful is just buy good companies and hold them for the long term. Okay. So who's your ideal client then? Who is it that you like to help out the most? We like to work with people who are interested in planning, who are interested in preparing for future events, and who also understand they don't have all the answers. So those people really rely on us to be their quarterback, to be their coach in all of their financial matters. They'll call us, ask questions if they are relevant to their situation as far as retirement goals or spending goals, tax issues, estate planning issues. We quarterback all of that. We might not have all of the answers, but we have resources that we can rely on or other professionals that we can bring into the picture when necessary. So we're flexible enough to understand what the client needs and have that background. So it ranges from the farmer and rancher who's very simple, just looking for something easy to handle and understand to the more sophisticated business owner who has multi-million dollar empire and lots of different moving parts and wanting to tie it all together for transfer to the next generation. So there's lots of different answers for those types of people. But again, it's not intended to be complicated the way we work with clients. We want to strip out all the hard words, difficult words, and make it easy and make things simple and really get to know people. I think that's what we're good at is knowing what makes them tick, knowing what their goals and objectives are, asking just a lot of questions about them and their families. And that's really what you get to the underneath the hood. It's not about the money. It's about what the money is going to do for them. Mm, Yeah. So do you have a business or investment philosophy? I think the long-term compounding really works. Compounding of your investments over a long period of time. So we believe in reinvesting the dividends. We believe in always investing when it's the hardest. So when you're talking about emotional situation, people get emotional. They tend to want to avoid investing when, when the news is the worst but those become the best times to actually do it. And we try to really encourage people to look forward to these bear markets or times when people are nervous and uncertain and really increase their contributions if they can. We always discuss the areas of the media and their issues that we find media is not your friend. Matter of fact, if you pay too much attention to what's coming across the news wires or on your television, I think it can be detrimental to your wealth. They typically lead people in the wrong direction with just their emotional, they try to play on everyone's emotion, you know, fear and greed sell. And so people tune in when markets are at their highs or when markets are at their lows, that's when you're going to get the most viewership. And that's the that's the most scary time to actually be taking your advice from media or folks who are broadcasting what they're trying to sell. So tell us one thing that you recommend most to clients, family, or friends. I recommend that people start early, investing early, get a 
basic understanding of invest investing when you're young, if you can. If that time has already passed you by, well, you're going to ramp up your contributions to get to catch up from the time that you've lost. But I think it's really important that people don't delay. Start soon. Educate your kids if you have already done it, because kids are our future. And what we want our kids to be able to do is have a hopefully have a better life than those that came before us. Sometimes, however, I think parents are so protective and so careful with their children that they're they take on all their responsibilities. I'm a firm believer the theory that kids need to fail. I think our kids need to learn how to have tough life experiences in order to grow, in order to learn. And I see this in all the walks of life that I'm involved in, with this, which is coaching and, and teaching kids financial literacy. I see parents who are so anxious for their kids and they're so nervous for them to have any setbacks in life that they want to take it all upon their own shoulders. So sometimes they'll do everything for them financially, buy everything for them. They never learn. And again, I, I think we, as a society, we need to teach kids, but we need to be careful not to do everything for them. Failure is important. And it's just a matter of just being there to tell them that they're okay. But, but again, it's not doing it for them. They have to learn how to bounce back, right? That's right. Well, I had to learn that the hard way in so many different walks. Of getting oh. thrown off the horse, you get right back on. Literally for you. <laughs> That's right. That's right. There's no laying there crying in the mud. You skip back up and get on. Oh. You know that horse who's boss. Um, so when you're not working, what is it that you like to do for fun now? We know what you've done in the past. And so what is the what's fun bill like? Well, I have my routines. I have certain things I love to do. One of the things that gets me that keeps me grounded and it kind of helps me from a health standpoint is exercise. I love to exercise. I've always gotten a lot out of that. And I love the community that you have. So the last several years, uh, I would probably say for 15 years, I've been a member of a CrossFit gym. And so I go CrossFit after work. I try to go every day. Sometimes it's only four days a week. That's a, it's a great stress reliever. I also enjoy breeding and raising horses. It's one thing I do on my farm. I have a farm called Buckway Ranch. I should say a ranch called Buckway Ranch. <laughs> but it, where I, I have horses, I raise crops, alfalfa primarily, have some pasture grass and different pastures that I turn my horses out in. And then I breeze and raise colts and watch the mares and babies in the fields and some of them I'll sell, some of them I'll keep and, and race, but I'm heavily involved in horse racing and it's again, part of my past, but now I'm involved from the standpoint of an owner and a breeder. And it's a completely different experience because when you're a jockey, you ride so many different horses in the day and you really don't understand all that goes in to preparing or getting that horse up to that level to be ready to race from the from just the conception to breeding, you know, breeding the mare to delivering the foal to raising it and then getting it broke to ride and enter it in all these different races and the expense of it all. So there's so much that, that is, uh, 
behind the scenes that you don't understand or appreciate when you're a jockey, you just go from one horse to the next riding throughout the day. You might ride, oh heck, I was riding hundreds of horses every week and just doing my best on each horse, but you really don't appreciate behind the scenes as much. Now, now I understand it. Mm-hmm. But those are the things I, I like to do away from the away from the office. I also coach softball. I've been coaching my girls, my daughters in softball for quite a few years. I coached my son in baseball when he was playing. Now he's graduated and out of college and actually works for me. But those are the things I enjoy spending time with my family uh, doing and traveling with my wife. And I also like to read when I have time, free time. Well, it doesn't sound like you have any free time. <laughs> <laughs> it's rare. Yeah. So that leads me to, if you did have all the money in the world, and I think I might know how you are going to respond this, to this, what would you do? I have a feeling you wouldn't be doing things much differently than you are now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really wouldn't change a lot about my life. I really love what I do. I can't imagine doing a whole lot of other things. I don't don't want a lot of things. I wouldn't want airplanes and other things like that. I guess I it just doesn't find a lot of value in that for me. But it'd be nice if a person could say, all right, I'm step stepping back here. I'm looking at what could I do to impact the world, make it a better place, or even just the country, if I had all the money in the world. Well that would that would be a scary proposition for one person to have control right? of all the money. Yeah. So you better hope it's somebody Someone you, good. you can trust, right? But I guess I'd want to try to eliminate or root out corruption if I could. I know that takes a lot of different forms, but I, I find the worst type of corruption is in our politics of, of this country. I, I think it's probably all over the world, but I just don't like some of the things that media does. I don't like some of the things that going on to divide the country and make things harder for working class people. And I, uh, I'd want to probably put in some term limits on our Congress people and uh, make them come in and move on and not sit and lie to us for the rest of their lives, as <laughs> most of them do. I think that's pretty uh, noble effort. A lot of people talk about, well, complain about the system, but you are saying that you would actually try to do something to change it. So that's really honorable. <laughs> well, thanks. I I would hope that I, somebody could make a change. That's what it would be. I know those are difficult. We A lot of people talk, but there's not a lot of people who take action. And I've found that to be the case in a lot of walks of life. I've served on a lot of boards. So when you're doing community service or serving on nonprofits, you'll oftentimes get a whole host of complaints or ideas or both from people who are on the board. But yet when it comes time to implement the change or put it into action or do the hard work, they vanish. They're gone. And there's only a handful of people who are willing to do the work. Yeah. And I find that in softball. I find that the girls that I can count on that I know are going to be there to work and the ones that are just there to have the experience. You see that on in every almost every day of your life. You just look around. You can see that. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to this podcast, what are you hoping to achieve? Who do you want to listen? Well, I hope people who are interested in maybe entertainment, but at the same time, learning about 
concepts that can better their lives, financial type concepts, money management, investment strategies and ideas, things that, again, aren't for the super sophisticated and you need a college degree to understand. But hopefully information that you can take and apply to your life and can make a difference in where you end up from a financially from a financial standpoint. And those people, I think, would get a lot out of this. We're also going to encourage folks who have an interest in equine industry because that is a part of the clientele we serve. A good portion of our clients have a background in equine industry. And I think we're going to bring on a lot of guests who will resonate with that group. You don't have to be in the equine industry, of course, but I think you're going to, there'll be a lot of folks with insights there that you would find interesting. Uh, that's our goal. A lot of guest speakers who can bring different life experiences to the listeners. And I would just say it was, it's going to be straightforward. It's going to be advice that you can take and apply straight away. Well, I am very much looking forward to it, Bill. Well, I hope you I hope you get a lot out of it. I hope you enjoy it. I hope I do too. I'm sure that I will. So if somebody wants to get in touch with you, how would they do that? Typically, people can call us. I'm one that just likes to talk to people directly. So call us on our phone number. And you can find that on our website, which is petersonws.com. That stands for Peterson Wealth Services. We have a lot of information on there from blogs to different video posts, how our business operates, our process, the team members that you'll meet. I think uh, those are the, some of the ways you'll get to know us. One thing you'll know, you'll find out soon enough about our company is we all have a part in working with every client. It's all hands on deck. And we all strive to make the client experience as good as it can possibly be. When someone calls our firm, they're going to know who they're talking to. And it becomes a really intimate relationship. Most of our clients know us and we know them deeper than just a transactional relationship. We know about our families. People call and ask about how things are going in my life, things that are going on, and all and my staff will know the same about them. So I, I think that's where we are different than a lot of other firms. We we know this is a relationship business. People can go anywhere with their money. They can go to a huge Wall Street firm. I worked at Wall Street firms. I find that they've lost that sense of touch and values, core values. We call ours the code of the West. We live by the code of the West. The principles that we think are important to carry on that tradition. Mm. And that's what we live by here. I like it. Can't wait to dive in a little bit more. Well, it's been fascinating getting to know you today, Billy. I really appreciate you taking the time. And uh, we'll be speaking a lot more in the future. Sounds great. Looking forward to it. Appreciate okay. that, Wendy. And thank you for joining us today. Please like, follow, and share this podcast with your friends. Until next time, I'm Wendy McConnell. 
Thank you for listening to Harnessing Your Wealth with Billy Peterson. Before we declare the race official, please click the follow button so you can be notified when new episodes become available. For more information about today's show, please check out the show notes. Visit our website at www.petersonws.com or give us a call at 801-475-4002. Once again, thank you for listening. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Peterson Wealth Services. The content has been made available for information and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.